Well, thank you very much. And welcome to the first ever live advisory opinions podcast. Before we go on, I realized I'm not entirely fully dressed at the moment. Oh my God. Sorry. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Now, just uh, for the record and for the listeners who will listen to this, I just put on uh, UT, the UT hat. Um, and I never thought I would wear this hat in my life because I grew up in Kentucky. And this orange was a not my favorite color. But when two of your kids go to the University of Tennessee, I find myself suddenly, I find the balls suddenly much more compelling. That is the sacrifice of a parent. That is filial love. In That's action. true. Yeah. That's exactly right. So welcome. Thanks for coming. And we're going to talk about some really uncontro uh, uncontroversial things tonight. We're going to talk about guns and abortion. And if we have time, free speech. And then we'll also take your questions. So um, as a lot of people know who follow this podcast, who follow constitutional law, this is one of the most controversial Supreme Court terms or stands to be, could be one of the most controversial Supreme Court terms in a long time. Just this week, we had two of the more contentious topics come up, uh, an, abort an argument, not about abortion, on Monday. I get mad about that. Yeah, I, I know. But everyone says it's about abortion, yeah. and then we're going to kind of revisit a little bit. And then yesterday, amongst all of the talk of the Virginia gubernatorial election, which I might ask Sarah to share some of her political expertise on that, we had a uh, an argument on the Second Amendment. And it's only the third Second Amendment case to come up in the modern era of the court, really. In the last hundred years, yeah. Yeah. And I think that qualifies as modern era. Well, you're pretty old. <laughs> and uh, yeah, so, and this is going to I've be- I've been getting UT digs all day, y'all. So uh, he's going to, yeah. That is very true. I did ask a student who was here from California um, if he came to this universe, the, this UT, because it was the UT. And very diplomatically, already a budding politician, all he would say it is the first UT. <laughs> Which is true. But let's start <laughs> with guns, shall we? Ooh, yes. So this is the uh, case coming out of New York. It involves a restriction in New York about getting a permit to conceal carry outside the home for the purpose of self-defense. And in short, what New York requires is that you have an atypical need to protect yourself. Uh, you cannot just have a generalized fear. Uh, one example that they gave was, um, you know, you work late, you're coming home on the subway, you have to walk through a high crime neighborhood. Would that be enough to get you um, uh, one of these permits? And the advocate for New York said no, for instance. So to give you some idea of what we're dealing with, the question before the court is uh, under Heller, the 2008 gun case, they held that the Second Amendment created an individual right to keep arms. And the question here is, is there an individual right to bear those arms outside the home? And so going into this case, David, I think you and I have talked about it before as we were sort of discussing the upcoming term, and we both thought um, New York was on pretty shaky ground. They were coming in in a losing fight, not just because of who's on the court, but because their restriction is so wildly. It's outside the norm of most states, but also it's a um, may issue, not a shall issue. So it's up to the discretion of the individual uh, government official in your area of whether you are atypical, what that means. 
um, messy, messy stuff that people don't like in constitutional law areas. I have to say, really big picture, I thought that Paul Clement, the advocate uh, for the two people who were denied the permit, um, that the argument was a little less solid than I thought going in. Now, mind you, my expectations were like, they've got this. I don't know why we're doing the argument. Now it's like, oh, I see why we did the argument. Right. I So let me back up just a little bit and explain the basic gun rights, basically, in the United States in two minutes or less, okay? <laughs> or at least handgun carry rights. There's three general legal regimes that exist in the U.S. There's May issue, which means that if I want a, a permit to carry a concealed weapon, I don't have a right to it. I have to convince the government that I'm entitled to it or that I have a need for it. So in the New York situation, you had to show, for example, that somebody's threatened you or that you have a very particular reason. Maybe, um, you know, you're a per particularly high-profile public figure in a— As they mentioned, state judges, former police officers, celebrities. Exactly. Those are the three people who get— Conceal carry permits in New York. Yeah, exactly. You're a nurse who walks home late at night through the crime-ridden neighborhood. No. Nope. Thumbs down. Yep. So that's May issue. Then there's shall issue, which is if I check the boxes, like I can own a gun lawfully, I get my fingerprints, I take the class, et cetera, then I can get, I will, I'm entitled to a gun permit. And then the third one is what is broadly called constitutional carry, which is Tennessee now, which is the Second Amendment is basically your concealed carry permit. If you can lawfully own a gun, you can carry it. Uh, and that's Tennessee and about 15, 16 other states. So there's only about seven states left that are shall issue. So the issue, may. I mean, may issue, correct. So the issue in the democratic process has largely been decided that you're going to have shall issue or constitutional carry, except in these jurisdictions those seven states happen to be kind of big, though. They're pretty big states. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> New York being, you know, it's a some people here have heard of it. Yeah, yeah. It's one of one, one of, of the, the bigger states. ones. Yeah. So, the question then is, does the right to bear arms? Because right now, under the Second Amendment, this shocks a lot of people, especially in states like Tennessee that broadly protect gun rights. I mean, I, I think I, I might be wrong about this, but when we moved back here in 06, I think they issued us an AR-15 at the border, <laughs> but. <laughs> So Tennessee widely protects gun rights, um, but a lot of people who live in states like this that are broadly protect gun rights don't realize that as of right now, here is the full extent of constitutional protection of gun rights recognized by the Supreme Court, and it is this. You can keep a gun in your home for self-defense, period. That is it. That is it. And so that's why you know, as Sarah was saying, when Paul Clement comes in, who's outstanding, he's argued a ton of things. Former Solicitor General. And before we get too far into the arguments, I want to set the stage of how it how it started. How it Set went. that stage. Okay. Yeah. Well, um, first of all, this is 13 years after Heller. Heller was the sort of Second Amendment. What does that mean? McDonald comes just a few years later. That's incorporating the Second Amendment against the states, meaning that if the federal government can't infringe on that right, Neither can the state, even if we're not quite sure what that right is. Um, Justice Gorsuch was on the phone for this argument, so that was a little unusual. We had Justice Kavanaugh on the phone two weeks ago. He's back in person, Justice Gorsuch now on the phone. Um, David, so I listened to the argument, you read the transcript. We like doing this from time to time because yep. you can get different things, doing it different ways. The norm in the arguments has just changed. Uh, 
we talked a lot about how the arguments pre-COVID, during COVID, and now, now you have what amounts to the pre-COVID regime first, then the during COVID regime second. You used to have 30 minutes per side, and it was just a free-for-all. You walked up to the podium, you crank the podium, that's like the tradition, um, though I'm not sure people are... Did they? Paul Clement's not cranking the podium. Right. Uh, but at your first time, you crank the podium. And uh, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. And from that second, they can interrupt you, and it's a free-for-all for 30 minutes. Now, sometimes you can get two minutes. That would be max, really. And then during COVID, they went to pure phone argument, and each justice went in order. The chief went first, then he recognized Justice Thomas. You got three to five minutes. Um, and they lasted a lot longer. But now I feel like we settled into an interesting norm. So first of all, we had our 30 minutes of free-for-all. Even that was far more polite than it ever used to be. I think because Justice Sotomayor publicly made a comment a few weeks ago about being interrupted and about that study which showed that um, female justices on the court were getting interrupted, not only by male justices, but by male advocates more than (laughs) anyone else. And any lawyers in the room, bad idea, <laughs> bad idea. Uh, the lack of interruption today was very noticeable to me. Sotomayor at one point talking for, I think I clocked it at four and a half minutes and nobody jumped in, which never happened pre-COVID. Um, and at one point, one of the other justices does, uh, you know, inter- interrupt, but not really like the person was done. And he goes, I am so sorry for the interruption. It was so we had 30 minutes of that free-for-all, and then we had 20 minutes of the questions in order. The whole argument lasted two hours. And mind you, that um, case out of Texas, the abortion uh, law that was challenged on Monday, that was a three-hour argument. So we're getting much longer arguments, which obviously we love in this podcast. Um, Paul Clement, right? As I said, former Solicitor General, he's argued umpteen cases at the Supreme Court. When most people speak publicly, they sort of have a different voice than they use in their living room. Mm -hmm. Not Paul Clement. He is so comfortable up there. He just sounds like he's having a chat with some friends and how interesting that you get to listen in. He has some of the, you know, the verbal tics that you have when you're comfortable instead of the verbal tics that you have when you're uncomfortable. Really fascinating to listen to. If we have any future lawyers or want to go to law school, be a constitutional lawyer, I always recommend listening to Paul Clement's arguments. Um, he's just, he is one of the best. Obviously, my husband is the best. So go <laughs> listen to his arguments. But there's a reason, you know, Paul Clement is Paul Clement. Uh, now, we had Paul Clement at first against the New York restriction. And then we had the New York Solicitor General for the New York restriction (laughs) in the free-for-all section, the first 30 minutes. The only real questions to Paul Clement came from Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor. In the New York Solicitor General's argument, the only three three questioners really were Alito, Gorsuch, and Thomas. And this goes to my overall thesis on the 3-3-3 court we have. It's not a 6-3 court. It's not a 5-4 conservative court um, anymore like we had uh, in the Kennedy era. We have Breyer, Kagan, and Sotomayor as uh, the liberal three. We have Thomas, Gorsuch, and Alito as the conservative non-institutionalists. And then we have the chief, Chief Justice Roberts, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, and Justice Kavanaugh as the conservative institutionalists. 
And this case, once again, highlighting the difference between conservative institutionalism and conservative non-institutionalism. Conservative institutionalism would be a conservative justice who is taking into account sort of the institution of the court, how this, how the ruling affects the institution. It's not really to say it's a, how do, what do people think about us is a very shallow way of looking at it. That's the Twitter way of looking at it. Do not do the Twitter way of looking at it. Or any, anything. At anything. anything. <laughs> except, except John Morant highlights. Um, and so, it can even be whether justices from lower courts are going to have an easy time following that precedent. That would be an institutionalist concern, for instance. Well, should change be incremental rather than revolutionary? That's an institutional type concern. What is the What is the role of the court in... The greater separation of powers, that's an institutional type concern. Whereas the other three, the three originalist judges that are not institutionalists, their philosophy is summed up in the immortal words, Leroy Jenkins, <laughs> which if you, I, there's some very smart people here who know that reference. Um, but anyway, so. But this is how Oklahoma, for instance, becomes, you know, Eastern Oklahoma is now part of an Indian territory for criminal justice purposes because you know, Gorsuch, Leroy Jenkins did, was mm -hmm. like, look, I'm reading the treaty. It says that doesn't belong to you, Oklahoma. So yeah. it doesn't belong to you. And, you know, the institutionalists were like, um, I feel like that could have some consequences. <laughs> yes. So that's a good institutional yeah. versus not institutional. That's, a good, that's yeah. a good example. So what's interesting about this case and what's fascinating is we're actually watching constitutional law doctrine be born in real time. This is how it happens. And Sarah has talked about before this case was accepted that the reason why the court had not taken another Second Amendment case, in addition to it being really contentious and there wasn't a coalition of the court who necessarily was confident how it would come out, that there's a saying that when there's new doctrine, the lower courts, that the law has to mature at the lower court level. You have to sharpen what are the disputes. What, what are the doctrines that are emerging? What are the disputes? Well, Second Amendment doctrine had matured enough to where its voices changed and it had a learner's permit. It was ready, <laughs> it was ready for prime time at the Supreme Court again. And here's the really interesting issue to me. Let's just get this out of the way. New York is losing. Agree? Yes. New, New York, York is, is gonna lose, but boy, not as much as I thought they were going to. That's where this gets super interesting. So New York is losing, and the main reason they're losing is the word bear. There's two words in the Second Amendment. There's keep and bear. And as of right now, if you have to go to the government to get permission granted by a government official to exercise a right, it is not a right, okay? Uh, and so that means that the word bear, if there is no right, to uh, obtain a gun permit, then the word bear is essentially written out of the Constitution. And so that's the that word- That ain't gonna happen. That ain't gonna happen. So New York's gonna lose, but here's the thing. One thing that's absolutely established and so far in the one case, <laughs> Heller, is that reasonable restrictions can be put on this right. And there are two kind of competing ideas about how do we define these restrictions. One is, do you look at the text, history, and tradition of the Second Amendment? Or two is, do you establish a test, uh, a, a one of the standard tests that apply to other constitutional rights, whether it's strict scrutiny, which is the highest level of scrutiny applied to the government, intermediate scrutiny, 
Which is made up. Which is made up. <laughs> whatever you want to do, judge, is yeah, fine with like me. whatever you feel like. Rational basis review, which is you win government. <laughs> um, and so the the what Clement was arguing for was something called the text, history, and tradition test, which is not really a test that applies to any of the other rights in the Bill of Rights. But that phrase appears in Heller. But that phrase appears in Heller. Uh, and you saw several disputes breaking out between the conservative institutionalists and the conservative uh, non-institutionalists. For instance, Justice Kavanaugh at one point saying, but we start with the text, right? <laughs> like, wink, wink. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you had Justice Thomas and Alito especially talking about what that history and tradition means. But I thought that the three, the Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan team, mm-hmm. and they, they did feel a little teamish yeah. uh, in this argument, did a really, really effective job tearing apart the history and tradition argument, not in the sense that it's the opposite, not in the sense that, um, you know, now nobody gets guns, but more in the, what history? Is it this person's history? Is it this person's? The history was incredibly messy. It was not at all clear. And this is why, for instance, conservatives don't do legislative purpose analyses. It's impossible when you have 435 people whose purpose counts. And so you have them arguing over... (laughs) <laughs> the, what was it? The statute of Hampton? Northampton? Northampton. I mean, it was some just delightfully British-sounding thing. Yeah. Uh, you know, I mean, going didn't back the arguments... to like the Norman conquerors. Oh, yeah. They, this the was ridiculous. went back 15th century, 14th century, 17th century, all about England. Like, what's going on with the English Bill of Rights? What the heck? And then you had this really interesting thing, which is if you're going with text, history, and tradition, what some of the justices pointed out is, well, then the text, history, and tradition says open carry. Carrying now openly, because in this 18th century, if you carried concealed, you were up to no good. Right. If you carried openly, the norm was you have nothing to worry about. Here's my rapier. <laughs> you know, here's my mus- here's my, you know, my flintlock musket. But if it's hidden, then that was a problem. Now, if you open carry, unless you're like, you know, hashtag America, you know, then it is rude. Like walking into Starbucks with open carry is, people think it's rude. And so the norm had flipped totally. So they said, if it's text, history, and tradition, well, history and tradition is open carry, yes, concealed carry, no. And Paul Clement was like, but the norms. But it's not text, history, tradition, and norms. (laughs) And so that shows some of the difficulties there. Then there was also the big argument over, for instance, in the statute of Northampton, but there there was another one over uh, what the word to terrorize or offensively meant that fun little cul-de-sac, I think kind of led nowhere, but it's nevertheless interesting. So the statute of Northampton, which I'm sure you're all familiar with, but just in case, uh, prohibited carrying in fairs and markets. Well, that seems pretty clear, right? The history and tradition was that you could not carry in places basically where other people were. (laughs) Oh, except that what it actually says is, it prohibited carrying in fairs and markets with the intent to terrorize. And so the question is, is it that carrying itself is the intent to terrorize or that you have to have the purpose when you're going to terrorize people? And basically nobody knows. You know, there was another statute that Alito really took to task the New York Solicitor General. At one point, the the actual question was basically, I'm I'm slightly caricaturing it here. Um, So are you willing to say today that you lied to this court intentionally? And she was like, I'm sorry, what? Huh? 
And he's like, oh, because in your brief here, I see you um, you quote this, that you're not allowed to carry whatever places. But it, you left out the word offensively. And she's like, perhaps we should have included that word and explained it, Justice. <laughs> but again, it was the same argument. Her, I thought, she had a pretty good answer, which was offensively in that content context meant, um, for instance, you could be carrying a hammer offensively, or you could be carrying a hammer to like nail some stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was not about um, for the purpose of, it was whether it was like an offensive weapon. So right. guns would always fall into the offensive weapon because obviously none of these statutes specified guns, they specified weapons. Yeah. Um, and so again, you just get this very messy text history tradition yep. part, which I um, I was <coughs> persuaded by. But I want to ask you about the First Amendment analogy. Yeah. Because that was where I was like all on board. Mm-hmm. I will be very honest about my biases. I, um, I, there was a gun in my house, but I didn't grow up in a gun house, if that makes sense. My mom bought a uh, little rifle at Walmart to get the armadillos out of her azalea bushes. That kind of, I think that actually sums it up pretty well, kind of house I grew up in, to be honest. Um, so I am not a, I don't really care about this issue, qua issue, but I care a lot about the Constitution, and that's why I'm here. I am like, I'm not here for the guns. So the First Amendment says, Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. And for the students here, I at least used to get quizzed, um, and I had a little, it's raps, Religion Assembly Press Petition Speech, if you ever need to remember all of your um, First Amendment rights. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of all of those things is absolute. And yet we know none of those rights are absolute. There's time, place, and manner restrictions. Um, And at one point, Paul Clement starts discussing how perhaps we could do something like that for the Second Amendment. And he makes a little joke that did not seem to land. Um, And he he was asked, uh, do you just apply First Amendment standards to the Second Amendment? And he says, not lock, stock, and barrel. That's good. I think that's solid. I think that's solid. I thought that was a good joke. Yeah. I don't think Paul Clement's that funny a guy, and for him to make that joke, like, he should get bonus points. Yeah, that's solid. Yeah. No, I I thought that was the most interesting part of the argument, but before I get there, I wanted to just say that's not entirely true that you live in, like, a gun-free household, because I when I'm in D.C. for dispatch meetings, I stay with Sarah and Scott in the room I stay in. You have a flintlock <laughs> pistol. <laughs> it's a mounted flintlock pistol, which— as a self-defense enthusiast myself, really stumps me if there's an intruder, if I'm going to have time to bite the cartridge, prime the flint. Hold on there. Don't, you know. I have attack cats. Don't try anything. So the First Amendment analogy was really interesting on on two two grounds. One is um, it's a reason why New York's going to lose. Like, I don't have to go to a state official and say, can I speak, please? And the state and like, official like, are you says, atypical? Yeah. Do you need to speak because you're different than everyone else? What or is do you the have need? the same opinions? Are you a celebrity, a judge? <laughs> so I don't have to get that kind of permission. I just get to speak. But as Sarah indicated, there are kinds of regulations that can be applied to speak. Uh, to. For I'll give you a perfect example from a college campus. So if you're, say, uh, back in, in 03, there was a lot of contention on campus over the invasion of Iraq, and the big saying was no blood for oil. Well, I could stand in the quad all day long and yell, no blood for oil, no blood for oil. Nobody could shut me down. If a college tried to shut me down, I could sue, I could win. 
But if I walk through the dorms at 2 a.m. yelling no blood for oil, then that's considered a substantial disruption. I could be silenced, but not because of what I said, but where I said it and how disruptive it was. Time, place, and manner. Time, place, and manner. First Amendment legal term. So essentially what you began to have in the gun carry circumstance was, okay, you can carry except when you can't. And so then we had all kinds of questions about, well, what about a football stadium? It got very, um, very specific. Uh, So let's see. We had, can they restrict, this is from the chief justice, can they restrict where alcohol is served? Which I thought was actually the best of all the examples. It came first and I wish they had gotten to spend more time on it slash circled back to it. And basically Paul was like, final answer, no, they can't restrict all places where alcohol is served, but maybe they can say that if you are carrying, you can't drink alcohol there. And I was like, oof, that, I'm not sure that's the right answer. Um, but then it got into more fun areas. Uh, football stadium, Yankee stadium. I'm not sure that we needed to have both of those as different examples. Like <laughs> yeah. the answer might be substantially different under the constitution. Uh, we spent a lot of time on NYU's campus. Mm-hmm. Paul then answered, uh, does NYU have a can- campus? Justice Kagan was deeply offended by that question. <laughs> Justice Thomas came back to it and asked whether the two people involved here lived anywhere near NYU's campus. <laughs> no, they don't. We spent so much time on that. But I think the one that leads me to believe that we could end up with a time, place, and manner type outcome here was Justice Barrett asking about Times Square on New Year's Eve. Yeah, that's when, it's interesting. Justice Barrett already has the knack for saying memorable things and asking memorable questions. Super pragmatic, cutting to the heart of it. She's getting her sea legs under her, no question, real quick. My favorite response already from Justice, my favorite Justice Barrett moment is still from the Monday oral argument, this three-hour monstrosity about the Texas abortion law, where she posed a question the advocate responds to her and she just simply says, assume I don't buy that. <laughs> uh, Not a great thing you want to hear as an advocate. You know, so what's all interesting about this, it, it, cutting to the chase to get to my two final takeaways. Number one, New York is going to lose, but it's going to be a pretty narrow loss that they're not going to, the court is not going to swoop in and settle all of the bearing arms aspects of the Second Amendment. Um, so that's number one. And number two, it shows why, and a lot of originalists get kind of a little cranky about all of these tests that exist, like strict scrutiny or intermediate scrutiny or rational basis. You watched in real time why those tests exist, because there's so many permutations in real life of different circumstances that it's really hard to just pronounce and say, here is the rule that applies in life. What happens instead is you pronounce a, you pronounce a test, and then that test matures through the lower courts on how it's applied in different circumstances, and actually that makes a lot of sense. It just makes a lot of sense. What, what, how important is the government interest? Um, how broad is the government regulation? What's the importance of the private right at issue? All of these things really do have a hard, they're hard questions with hard answers, and it's really difficult to just pronounce on it. So that's why I think New York loses. I think New York loses 6-3 at least on the merits. 
And then there, it is just very, very, very limited. And we'll have a, an assault weapons case one day. We'll have a magazine cap capacity case one day. Oh, there's endless tributaries oh, here yeah, yeah. that we can go down. I think that uh, May issue will be a no-no, not just because there's a constitutional right, but also the discretion part is deeply concerning yeah. that you would have that much discretion over just who you appeared in front of that day to ask for your permit, basically. You know, and they're doing interviews and weird, very individualized tests to say, like, well, you don't have a self. No one wants to kill you. Uh, right. <laughs> I mean, what a weird thing to be told. And then what a weird thing, what an awful thing to be wrong about. Right. You know? <laughs> Whoops. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so they could do the narrowest version of this, which is simply um, may issues a no. But beyond that, you can restrict where concealed weapons, we're, we're making no ruling on where you can restrict, what those sensitive places are. And so then New York will just say all places are sensitive and <laughs> then we'll just do this again. Yep. I actually think that's a very likely outcome. Number two, middle ground. Uh, can't do may issue. You have to do shall issue. But then they do go somewhere to... Um, maybe analogize to the First Amendment, say, uh, you know, the First Amendment has strict scrutiny. The First Amendment has time, place, and manner restrictions. Um, maybe give some examples of Yankee Stadium is, first of all, private, right? So, like, I don't even know why that kept coming up. Um, I, God help us if NYU's campus ends up in the opinion. <laughs> and they basically offer New York maybe some road mapping. Yep. Um, and then, of course, there's the third, which I think is least likely, which is, uh, it says bear, that word has meaning, shall issue is the only way, and it's strict scrutiny, and uh, your the government's interest is going to be very limited in its ability to do anything about that. Like sort of the heaviest thumb on the First Amendment side, kind of. I think that's unlikely because I think even Barrett and Kavanaugh, well, actually, I want to take that back. Kavanaugh seemed pretty far over, not the swing vote this time. Remember, he was in 93% of the majority opinions last term. He is not the swing vote here. Uh, Barrett might be, I think Barrett might write the opinion. Not a bad prediction. And so- I got a one in nine chance. <laughs> for, for the Tennesseans in the room and the Tennesseans listening, what does all this mean? Your life is not going to change at all. No. <laughs> because no. Tennessee law protects gun rights far more than this. We're talking Far about more. a floor. Yeah, not this a is ceiling. the floor, not the ceiling. All right, let's move on to our Texas. Yeah, so we gave kind of short shrift to the DOJ case. We talked a lot on Monday about the case brought by the abortion clinics in the state, but the second case was brought by the Department of Justice. And I think how we left it was uh, yeah, that's not going to go well for them. They're going to rule on for the abortion providers, find a way to enjoin it. My short version was, I think they will simply allow the injunction against unnamed plaintiffs who are deputized by the state, that become state actors as soon as they file a lawsuit under this law. Um, but I wanted to get back to the DOJ case a little. Well, let's reset for okay, a second. Okay. Because let's reset because that our podcast on that, which is one of the most contentious issues in America right now, we had more comments that said, I don't understand what you're talking I about. On I, that. Do, I did think of, I think, an easier way to talk, to explain it, at least in one sentence. Okay, do it. When we talk about the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law abridging. It's Congress. It's the government. 
they're the ones who can't infringe upon your constitutional rights. Now, we've incorporated that against the states, so it's now the federal government and the state government. But people can abridge your constitutional right. That dude can abridge your right all he wants. There's nothing against that. And so what we have here, though, is a state creating basically a whole right for him to abridge someone else's constitutional right, and we just haven't had to deal with that. It's never happened before, right? And so that's where we start from this problem. And then, of course, what the case is actually about is whether you can prevent that ahead of time. Yeah. Who do you sue ahead of time to stop? You said that dude. Are you talking about that <laughs> dude right there? So what's your <laughs> we name? We can use the professor also. We, we met each other earlier. David? So David. So I'm David. You're our, who do I sue to stop David from suing me to stop me from exercising a con or suing me for helping someone else exercise a constitutional right if I don't know David's going to sue me. Right, or or to simply chill that right in the first place. If David can get a million dollars from you if you say something that offends David, then you're not gonna say that nope, thing. I don't want and then David never sues you. So then you never get to vindicate, you never get to say it, and you never get to vindicate your right. Well, mm -hmm. clearly that's not the answer. Yep. So that's why we we have said this Texas case isn't about abortion strictly. It's about how do if if I if a if the state passes a law that gives any of you guys the ability to sue me, for example, for selling someone a gun, or like passes a law that says bald people can't vote, <laughs> and and then the state doesn't enforce it, but it gives David the right to sue me for ten thousand dollars if I vote. How do I stop that? And that's what this whole argument was because the law doesn't provide a neat way to stop it, a clean, neat, simple way to stop it. And so in a lot of ways, Texas kind of hacked our whole constitutional structure, which is not what Tennessee intended when we created Texas. So, <laughs> so anyway, with that, with that, what what is and the, there, so there were two cases. One brought by an abortion clinic that said, "Hey, can we sue court clerks? We can. Who can? We've got some ideas about who we can sue to stop it." And then the DO, Department of Justice brought its own lawsuit that we think has less of a chance of succeeding. And so you had some more ideas about that. Yeah. So and remember, Texas didn't have a cause of action. Like what allows Texas to sue, sorry, uh, the Department of Justice to sue Texas? And the Solicitor General's answer was basically because. Now she used the word equity, but I think equity in this, it, it's a synonym of because. And, um, and so what is the court going to do about that? And I think, again, to that 333 model, I think you had the you will have, rather, the uh, uh, non-institutionalist conservatives led by Justice Gorsuch, who was fiery mm -hmm. about this. Fiery. I think he will say, um, the United States, I want to establish right now, in fact, the United States does not have a cause in equity to go vindicating constitutional rights and suing states willy-nilly without any congressional statutory authorization or otherwise, and no, 1983, which allows um, private citizens to sue when their constitutional rights have been violated, does not have an implied cause of action for the United States government. Never come to us with this nonsense again. XOXO, mm -hmm. Neil. <laughs> um, however, I think, and this is what we didn't get to talk about, I think there is a decent chance, and in talking with friends of the pod, uh, that they could dig it meaning dismissed as improvidently granted. Which Hunt. 
yeah, they'll just punt it. It just, they get rid of it after oral argument. Um, it would be a little bit, this whole thing's unusual to hear oral argument on an emergency docket case is unusual. So when I say this is unusual, it's like unusual squared. It would be a little weird because there's not a procedural problem. There's not, um, I don't know, like usually digs come in the form of like, oh, we didn't know that when we took the case or something has changed. In this case, it's like, no, we just think your case is kind of crap. And weird. And weird. And we don't want it. And we have this other one that's better. So we're going to keep that one. Yeah. And, and, you know, one thing I, in our defense about this podcast where, and, and I literally gotten more mail than I've ever gotten saying, I don't understand. I didn't understand a word you said. That about, means you do understand it. If you don't think you understand it, you do. If you do think you understand it, you actually probably don't. <laughs> yes. Because it made our heads hurt. You could tell it made the justices heads hurt. Just this whole problem the advocates were, everybody was struggling with this. Everybody was struggling. And it's one of those things, I have a few shorthand ways of understanding if somebody doesn't know what they're talking about. Like if someone walks in and says, I know how to solve the Middle East. (laughs) You know nothing, you know? Or I know how to solve, you know, the history. I know how to deal with the history and legacy of American racism. Oh, really? Okay. Um, If I understand the oral arguments around SB8, no, you don't. (laughs) It's that difficult. It really is. And so your your prediction for the record is? Whole women's health is told that you simply um, sue future plaintiffs, basically, which isn't great. It's not a perfect solution, but I think it will be the solution here. And uh, I think... I actually think that Justice Gorsuch, there could be some like log rolling on this, which nobody would ever admit outside the Supreme Court, that in order to have a less angry Justice Gorsuch on the unnamed plaintiff part, which he's not going to like, because that is some made up stuff for sure, but very institutionalist, helps the whole court system. Uh, In return, Justice Gorsuch gets to say that the U.S. doesn't get to do this. So I would put the Justice Gorsuch DOJ uh, bench slap as my first, and then dig as second. All right. So can you put on your political hat for a minute? You're the one wearing the hat. Well, no, this is the power <laughs> to you. Um, and so th- this is a unifying symbol, not a political mm. symbol. Um, and so here's the political question. So what's interesting to me is we had this argument on Monday in the Supreme Court. On Tuesday, we had a Virginia gubernatorial election in which abortion was front and center in the Democratic candidate's pitch. And he was accurately arguing that for, because um, in another case called Dobbs. This the, is the Mississippi 15-week abortion ban. Right. That's coming up December 1st for oral argument. December 1st. Roe versus Wade and the Roe-Casey framework, the constitutional right to abortion could go away. Okay, it, I mean, he didn't say could. He said, we'll go away, and then Glenn Youngkin will ban abortion. He said it. He will do it. Abortion will be illegal in the state if he wins. Right. And he said that on Chuck Todd. He said that on Dana Bash. He said it on Morning Joe. I've watched all his interviews, and it is the second thing he says in every list. And he spent an enormous amount of money to say that mm-hmm. on ad buys, just an enormous amount of money. And here's the thing. He overstretched. He, he misrepresented Youngkin's position. That is not what Youngkin said he would do. But- McAuliffe is correct that there is a chance that the governor of Virginia could sign into law a law banning abortion or substantially restricting abortion in Virginia, a law more extensive than anything permitted now. That's very possible. And yet, 
of all of the issues in in the exit polling, abortion was listed as the least important by the voters in the Virginia race by far. 8% of Virginia voters listed that as tops, and they went for the Republican 59-41. The next lowest of the most important list was at 15%. Is abortion really the most contentious issue in American politics anymore, Sarah? Was it ever? And it's funny, we started this conversation by saying we're talking about guns and abortion, the two most controversial things uh, in the culture war, and they're just not anymore. Um, both of those issues have mostly fallen by the wayside. I have theories as to why abortion has declined as a um, hyper salient issue. And remember, with politics, right, it's rarely the issue itself. It's what the issue signals. It's what it you know means to you. It's sort of like these... Uh, it becomes almost a shibboleth so that your team knows that you can come in the camp. Uh, but as time went on, first of all, it just gets old, right? We're just arguing over the same thing over and over again. But the number of abortions has plummeted. Birth control becomes far more available. Plan B becomes available. But I think specifically in Virginia, um, when you're talking about parents, the women who you are talking to a, already have children, um, B, are frankly older than the age we're talking about here a lot of the time. And so I think in the battle between the two culture war issues, it wasn't, it just wasn't going to be a hard question of which one was going to win out. What's fascinating to me is that the, I've always said, you know, it's always one thing when you're arguing, it was like a boy who cries wolf thing. They're going to overturn Roe. They're going to, they've been saying that since the nineties. Uh, and it hasn't happened, but then Texas happens and the number of abortions in the state of Texas has dropped by half. Abortions after uh, six weeks, to say they're banned, I mean, they technically, it's weird. It, I don't, <laughs> technically the law says they are banned, but the only enforcement mechanism is a private individual suing. David suing. David, um, yeah. our, yeah. Mm -hmm. Kind of a jerk, David. <laughs> um, and so I thought maybe with that going into effect, it would take away the boy cries wolf problem politically for them. I was a little surprised that it didn't seem to at all. It was like, oh yeah, meh. Well, the, and the other thing is, so, you know, I dove into some of those numbers today because I was, I was writing about it. You can't even say that in Virginia, it wasn't a salient because there's not nearly as many white evangelical voters. Because when you say, poll, exit polls, I always say the words white evangelicals because that's what exit polls ask. Like they don't ask people of all ethnicities if they're evangelical or born again, which drives me nuts because you don't know sort of what all self-described evangelicals believe. You only know what self-described evangelicals of one ethnicity believe. But anyway, that was 27% of the electorate, 27%. And the stereotype is that white evangelicals are all voting on abortion Yet only 8% of the electorate said abortion's the most important thing. Oh, no question for the right that mm -hmm. education has overtaken yeah. abortion the same way immigration already overtook abortion. We're like three generations past abortion being the motivating issue on Even the for right. evangelicals. Even for evangelicals, yeah. um, you know, and all of this coming to the court. It's interesting there aren't more immigration cases that have caught the public's attention at the court because there are tons of immigration cases at the Supreme Court every term. Now they're pretty like hyper-technical, like did you fill out form 24B, right? But still, yeah. Yeah. we can make that sound sexy. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it, no, no, we can't. <laughs> we can't, we've tried. Um, 
But I have a theory, and my theory is this, and it's very related to yours. So I think there's there's two realities that are going on at once. One is the abortion rate right now is lower than it was before Roe versus Wade was decided by a pretty considerable amount. Um, the rate is lower and the ratio is lower. So the rate of abortions per 1,000 women and abor abortions per 1,000 pregnancy, both lower than when Roe versus Wade was decided. And to put that per in perspective, when Roe was decided, abortion was illegal or substantially restricted in most states in the U.S. So it's lower than when abortion was Ill illegal in most places in the U.S. That's number one. Number two, a hugely, I think, more people need, who are interested in this issue need to read this study. The best study I've seen on people's attitudes about abortion, uh, Tricia Bruce, a, a Notre Dame uh, professor, and her team interviewed hundreds of people asking open-ended questions for more than an hour, demographically representative about this issue. And what they found is they're all over the map legally. Legally, they were all over the map. But out of the hundreds they interviewed, not one listed abortion as a desirable good. And so what you end up having is you have a a rule that, I mean, a, a right that is being decreasingly exercised that nobody really seems to be in love with. Which, which, by the way, is always when the Supreme Court bothers to come in. You yeah. know, like this is not the first time the Supreme Court has waited until something has largely been resolved. And then yeah. been like, yeah, yeah, think gay marriage, right? Yeah. And, and then that, what that means is it's lower intensity on all sides. Yeah. It's lower. Which is good for the court as an institution, in my opinion. You know, compare, um, it's funny, you go back and look at Brown v. Board of Education, who's not grateful to the court for that opinion. Mm-hmm. And uh, it resulted in immediate school desegregation across, oh, no, 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 it didn't do anything for 10 years. And so the court, as a culture-moving institution, obviously has not had a huge effect. I mean, Brown v. Board, I think, is the best example, but Roe v. Wade, not a bad one either. Right. Um, and that's not what the court's role is, and it's not very good at it. And, uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm actually in favor of the court kind of waiting. All right, question time. Yeah, perfect. Questions. Marianne? Well, my question actually was for Sarah, and it's a hostile one. Um, so in a recent podcast, Sarah criticized the possibility of a right of action based on equity, saying something like, equity means it is just made up. Uh, and then just earlier, she said equity meant because, and I don't think that she meant it as a compliment. So I'm not a lawyer, um, but I believe literally equity means something like justice. Uh, and I suspect the term comes from a pre-modern idea of natural law where justice is more important than the written text. So could Sarah explain to me, someone who likes natural law, uh, an idea that I think is kind of in, in both the Bible and a, a lot of smart philosophers, uh, why I should worry about rights of action based on equity? Hmm. I think that is a really good That's question. A great Are you question. a law student or just a natural law phenom? Philosopher. Yeah, that's uh, a great question. I hate philosophers. No, it's a really good question. And yes, I am being flippant with what the term equity means in law. And you have correctly defined it, what it means in law. It basically means, no, there isn't a cause of action, but there are overriding concerns about justice that uh, we're going to ignore the lack of, in this case, a cause of action, but it can mean something else. That's what equitable estoppel means. It means it's unfair if we didn't prevent this. Justice is more important than the rule. Um, and, you know, in the, as a philosopher, I'm going to get it wrong, the six stages of morality that humans go through. Um, but, you know, one of them is basically like you apply the rule no matter what. And then, you know, the, that's what four-year-olds do, right? And then like eight-year-olds know that sometimes there are exceptions to the rule. Uh, so 
Why should that not apply here? So because there's no limiting uh, principle for the Department of Justice to then decide which rights it's going to sue states to vindicate and which ones it won't. And when she was pressed on what that limiting principle would be, because I hear you that if, you know, justice is more important, natural law, I totally agree with that. Who doesn't agree with that? Like, duh. Like, I like puppies, too. Um, (laughs) And kittens. Uh, But it's not quite that simple because you can't just do it in this case. And so then you have to have a rule. Why was this case different? And she was unable to articulate that in a way that wasn't. um, I'm trying to think of how she phrased it. She said, uh, because Texas purposefully infringed on a constitutional right, and this is particularly offensive, Well, that's just not, first of all, now we're going to determine whether states purposefully infringed on a right. And you have, I believe it was Justice Alito then following up and saying, okay, but does the right need to have been settled completely by the Supreme Court? If you, if a state had purposefully infringed on the right to bear arms in uh, 2009 after Heller, your test would work, uh, Miss Solicitor General. But what if someone, what if a state had purposefully infringed on the right to bear arms in 2007? So you know the court's going to take it, but you don't know how they're going to rule and you know it's unsettled. And she actually said, yes, the Department of Justice could still sue to vindicate that right equitably at that point, um, even on unsettled issues of constitutional law. Well, if that is the answer, then there now is no such thing as a cause of action because the United States, the federal government with the full power of all 122,000 people who work at the Department of Justice can now just go roving about vindicating rights. Yeah, I think one thing that's really important about the difference between law and equity, equitable principles, sort of injunctive relief is a classic exercise of the court's equitable power. When you're making a, an equitable argument in court as an actual practicing lawyer, you are basing it on sometimes centuries of common law. Um, some of that's rooted in natural natural law principles. Some of it's not. Some of it's rooted in pragmatism. Um, that's the way we do it here. Yeah. <laughs> now, if you're talking about creating a new equitable principle, that is a big deal. That is a very big deal because what you're talking about is not a freestanding, okay, at the final analysis, what a court has is the ability to, quote, do the right thing. Or as a as a, a, a Tennessee judge once told me when he swore into the bar, a young, a young lawyer who worked for me, he goes, um, you know, sometimes there's the law and sometimes there's what's right and you got to do what's right. And I thought, and as soon as as soon as uh, uh, I was out of earshot of the judge, I said to my young lawyer, "Never argue that. <laughs> Never argue that." So, so if you're going to be arguing the what's right, you're usually rooting that in a, a long, uh, you know, things like equitable, text history and tradition. Text history and tradition. You're rooting this in principles. If you're talking about creating new causes of action based in equity. And that is a that is a very, very dangerous thing for all of the reasons why it, that Sarah explained, because what you're doing is you're creating a rule. That's what people forget about court decisions. People when he, people hear about court decisions, they usually think an outcome. Who wins, who loses? That is a very important part of a court case. But the least interesting part. The least interesting in many ways. The most interesting is the rule. 
what is the rule? Because then the rule applies another time and another time and another time, and it builds and it gains its own life and its own momentum. And that's why you began to see Gorsuch, for example, or Thomas, for example, some of the, Thomas, for example, of all of the justices would be the most sort of natural law focused. And I 1 billion percent guarantee you that he would not create an equitable cause of action in this case. That was such a good appeal to authority. But also, that's like the nicest hostile and smartest hostile yeah, question I think I've ever been I, asked. You're, you must not be on Twitter. <laughs> <laughs> I have a little bit more of a hypothetical fun question um, because you guys dedicate a lot of time listening to oral arguments. If you could create a justice and add them to the court, what would they be like? Or in other words, what do you think the court is currently missing? I think that Justice Barrett's voice has actually added something that I thought was missing, that I'm I'm having some trouble defining, uh, like pornography. I guess I just have known it when I see it now. Obscenity. Oh, sorry. Yeah, obscenity. obscenity. You're right. Yeah. Uh, but there is a pragmatism to her questions that I have um, started to really appreciate. I don't know a better word for it. Uh, it's cutting through. She's very... She's, as, she's the closest to what I would imagine a very practically minded practicing attorney, how they, on the current court, how would a practicing attorney talk about this case? And that's my answer. Instead yeah. of a law professor, instead of a former solicitor general, which is a very rarefied air sort of practicing version of a practicing attorney, I think it would be absolutely fascinating to have a trial lawyer on the court. I'd love to see more prosecutors, criminal mm -hmm. defense attorneys, um, yep, trial lawyer, district court judges, trial judges instead of um, just appellate judges. But everyone says that. You know what I am actually less uh, into that people often say, like, we need law school diversity. I realize that's a little bit biased coming from me, perhaps. But um, that I don't think will provide the diversity people think. Having a brilliant appellate lawyer from the university of anywhere else is going to be the same. The same, yeah. <laughs> but I, and Judge Sotomayor was a district court judge at one point. How do I know this? My very first court argument I ever made in federal court was to district judge Sonia Sotomayor. Pretty cool. On a, on a discovery motion so boring, I don't even remember it. <laughs> Any other questions? Oh, no. There's a constitutional law professor about to ask us a question, David. <laughs> David and Sarah, thank you so much for coming. A very interesting conversation. Um, and Sarah, I was particularly struck by your uh, characterization of the, the division on the court as 3-3-3. And thinking about the division between the institutionalist conservatives and the more ideological conservatives, uh, well, I, I think it's likely that that, very likely, the New York case will come down 6-3. But, but do you really think there will be a majority opinion? Yes. In the um, New York case, yeah, I just think there'll be a very narrow majority opinion with like some concurrences. Know, yeah. Um, Justice Thomas clearly is going to write separately. But he'll go along with um, an opinion written by one of the institutionalists is what you're thinking. I think so. And I base that just on last term, really, where um, for the most part, they were able to find whatever narrow common ground there was and then fight it out in the concurrences slash concurring in part dissenting in part. And it was really those fights over textualism that I found the most instructive on this, where, um, actually, I'm going to go back two terms because it's just easier because everyone knows the case, but the Bostock case over whether Title VII applied to sexual orientation and gender identity, 
they were arguing over what textualism was. And I have to kind of feel a little bad for the Breyer, Sotomayor, Kagan three, because they were like, I, what? We're just, we're not invited to this party. Yeah. Uh, and so you had the, the well, at that point, two and three, but um, you had an argument over the conservative philosophies themselves. What is the correct approach to originalism and how we think about what Congress thought when Title VII was passed. Well, no, it doesn't matter what they thought. All that matters is what's in the text itself. No, your textualism is literalist. We don't literally look at the words. We look at what the words mean to a reasonable person at the time. Yeah. Um, and so what the word sex means became this really interesting intraconservative fight. Um, and I think that, first of all, it's super fun to watch. But I think they don't mind having then narrow opinions with the fight down the line. And we saw, I think, quite a few 6-3 cases. I mean, frankly, the vast majority of cases are unanimous, as I'm sure many of you know. But um, there were quite a few 6-3 cases last term where I think we got to see the family coming together for dinner and then fighting over breakfast. Yeah. Fulton is a great example. That was the um, religious liberty case out of Philadelphia, decided 9-0. And two of the key justices, uh, Barrett and Kavanaugh, wrote a separate opinion concurring with the concurring, but then also sort of musing. <laughs> is that a term? Concurring and musing. Because they said, well, we really don't like this case called Employment Division v. Smith, which I also really don't like, which is uh, arguably Justice Scalia's worst opinion, which really uh, limited religious liberties, uh, the free exercise clause of the First Amendment. And they were sort of saying, we really don't like Employment Division v. Smith, but nobody's really given us a better alternative. And that was just almost pure musing. It yeah. was- Angry cheerleader. Angry cheerleader I case. was disappointed that that one didn't have maybe more fighting involved. Yeah. Nobody took up my banner of let the students flip off their teachers every day. Right. Um, I maybe wasn't the most popular kid in high school. <laughs> no, but this happens all the time. You'll have- something that is a concurrence, but it really is just an ad, almost an advisory opinion, really. Just here's where, here's where my mind's at. And, and just as Thomas is doing that more, he'll do that just out of nowhere. Like he did a, um, in response to a denial of cert, in other words, a denial of a, a, a petition to review a case, he just mused about free speech on social media. And interesting reason for that, by the way, is that the Thomas clerks are not in the cert pool. Although I'm not sure how many chambers are in the cert pool. So when you petition the Supreme Court to take your case, you're filing a petition for certiorari and the clerks are really charged with reading those thousands of petitions and deciding which ones even deserve the justice's attention. Um, in a previous you know, iteration, basically, all the clerks, there are uh, what is <laughs> what is four times nine plus one. Anyway. Uh, <laughs> something. Uh, something. Mm-hmm. So they would... Uh, just take them all together, divide them all up, and everyone would, you know, be honest brokers about it. And Justice Thomas left the cert pool at some point and said that his clerks were going to read all the cert petitions. Um, And I believe that some other justices have peeled off as well. But I think that that's why you see Justice Thomas, and I believe maybe Justice Gorsuch, uh, writing more denials from cert. Dissent from denials. Sorry. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, Because they're actually reading more of them Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so first of all, as a Purdue grad, I want to mention while we're doing these university fights, I always appreciate when Purdue gets a shout out on the <gasps> podcast. So I went to Northwestern, which makes me the enemy of Purdue, but then I married into Purdue. 
a fourth generation Boilermaker. And my son only has Purdue gear. Uh, and he has the little book with the like, find the hammer. And anyway, but all I remember from college is like how much we loved the Purdue games because we got to chant, what the hell? What the hell's a Boilermaker? So I sometimes <laughs> ask my husband that. And I mean, you all are the best Division II football league. <laughs> of course, then we would do the really obnoxious things where we would shake our keys, of course, which lots of schools do. Yeah. But at Northwestern, we very much advertised that we intended it to mean, uh, you know, that's all right. That's OK. You'll be driving our car someday. So uh, my question, this is largely for Sarah, but also for both of you. But Sarah, I'm curious with your experience in campaigns with the Virginia election, I think the um, standard wisdom has been that um the Republican won by largely keeping Trump out of the race as much as he could, other than accepting his endorsement. So I'm curious, with the midterms coming up, do you think that the Republicans are going to take that as a model to emulate, or will they see the president's declining job approval numbers as, let's go back to the 2016-2020 playbook? I don't think they will have a choice, because I think that what allowed Glenn Youngkin to keep Trump at arm's length was also Trump's acquiescence to that agreement, right? If Donald Trump had said, um, Glenn Youngkin won't have, won't let me come visit Virginia because he's not really, he, you know, doesn't like you. He doesn't believe in you, Trump voters. He wants to keep you in the corner. Nobody puts baby in the corner. Um, then I, I don't think we would have had the turnout that we saw uh, in a lot of the Trump-carried counties. Now, he overperformed Trump in every jurisdiction in Virginia, but um, I think that Trump will also be quite frustrated that he doesn't get credit for the Yunkin win. And so I think in 2022, candidates just aren't going to have that option. Um, Trump will require an embrace, a fuller embrace, especially in those Senate races. Republicans are defending three open seats in Pennsylvania, North Carolina, and Ohio. We don't even know about Wisconsin yet because Ron Johnson hasn't said, um, Hamlet of the cheese state that he is. Uh, that's a lot of open seats to defend in states, especially Pennsylvania, that Donald Trump may feel uh, somewhat aggrieved by. So yeah, I mean, I think they would run that playbook if they could all day long. I mean, Kevin McCarthy knows how great that would be. So does Mitch McConnell. I mean, Mitch McConnell, my God, of all people, like <laughs> Donald Trump gets hit by a bus. I think you'll know who was driving it. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. First call is made. Yeah. Where were you on the night? Of um, but I just don't think it'll be an option for them. And I think they're pretty realistic about that. I mean, this was kind of a unicorn moment in a way because you had Youngkin was prevailed in a ranked choice voting convention on the sixth ballot, sort of overcame some more Trumpy people who are, would have likely been heavy favorites in a, in a primary. Um, and then Trump not only, Trump does sort of the perfect thing for Youngkin to win, which is to not suppress the vote, but then not really go there and try to whip it up because that's what McAuliffe wanted. That was going to be McAuliffe's great, great gift in the closing days as if Trump arrived in Virginia. And in fact, he even pretended that he did. Well, so I think there's some, we'll find out, no doubt. But Youngkin's behind by nearly double digits through the summer. Then he pulls up ahead in the fall. So, right, Trump's not going to go help someone who's going to lose. That's not going to happen. Okay, so 
the only time that Trump is even considering doing anything about this is the fall. And then the Fox News poll comes out and it shows Youngkin up by eight. And what happens moments later? Donald Trump, I'm coming to Virginia. Yeah. And then there's like a dot, dot, dot. He's going to do a, a, a conference call yeah. on Monday. I assure you there are some interesting things in that dot, dot, dot. Uh, and that lots of persuading and convincing was done to ensure that that was a phone call. Yeah. Because, again, I... I I use, I say, I refer to exit polls with all due caution that Sarah has taught me that they're mostly somewhat, largely, almost entirely garbage, but still. Fox News and CNN's exit polls on one of their tabs are 20 points apart. Yeah. But this <laughs> this seems pretty well established that Trump was underwater with Virginia voters in the gubernatorial election and Youngkin had a positive net rating. So you had a, you had turnout of Trump voters for sure. But you had some Biden voters who flipped around and voted Youngkin. This is super fun. Live podcasts are I neat. know. It's great. A, favor. Um, a couple of weeks ago, y'all talked about um, the great dissenter. I can't remember his name. Justice Harlan. John right. Marshall Harlan. And about how he was uh, just a man of conviction, of nuance, and of uh, evolving character. I was just curious as someone who just, that, that's just needed in our culture um, in that how two people exhibit it fairly well. I, I, I would say that's probably why I'm here. How do y'all do it with staring down Donald Trump at the Department of Justice to the evangelicals that are like our people, but not our people? Um, yeah, how do, you, how do you do it? You know, we talked about this a little with the students at lunch yeah, we did. today. Yeah, we did. And I have a really practical answer. It, this calls for a philosophical answer, and I'm not sure I have one, but I have a very practical answer, which is, for instance, every day at the Department of Justice, but pretty much every day I can remember of my career, I just sort of knew I could get fired that day. And I accepted that when I woke up and brushed my teeth. And so at the end of the day, if I still had my job, like bully me. Um, but if you know that, then what's the worst that can happen to you? You know, I have two cats who love me regardless and, uh, <laughs> you know, Twitter can jump off a bridge. Um, and I, I was fired from my first job out of college. And I actually think that was part of it. It removed that fear from me where I was like, oh, all right, well, that happened. So now, uh, you know, if Donald Trump fires me, like, so what? It's losing your job is just not the worst thing that can happen. And if you try, therefore, if you try to do the right thing every day and give grace to others and um, and seek that, and it is a seeking uh maybe not a finding all the time, um, then I don't know. You're where you are. <laughs> Sarah gave the pragmatic answer. I'll give the philosophical answer. Um, years ago, I read C.S. Lewis defined courage as the form of every virtue at its testing point. So in other words, you don't know who you are until it's tested. So you don't, you know, one of the easiest examples is there's a lot of people who go and deploy into a war zone believing that they're really brave and believing that they'll be brave. And then when push comes to shove, they're not. I mean, that's sort of a trope you see in movies, but it's a real thing. I mean, I saw it happen with my own eyes when I deployed or somebody who believes they're truthful until there's a cost to being truthful or um, and you can just go down every virtue, patient until there's a cost to being patient. You don't know who you are until it's tested. 
And I remember being so deeply impacted by that when I read C.S. Lewis's words. And it's something that uh, I've kind of kept in my mind. And it's something you, you're not perfect at it. You're never going to be perfect at it. But you have this sort of vision of who you want to be. What is, what it, how do you want to identify yourself? What do you want your identity and your grounding to be in? And then living up to that and understanding that it's not going there's going to be times when it's not going to be easy at all. Um, and I think walking in, just having that knowledge from C.S. Lewis and understanding the sort of definition of what courage was, uh, and then understanding that you really don't understand, you don't know what you're going to be until the moment. It's, it both creates humility and resolve at the same time. Because I think a lot of times people are taken by surprise by the intensity of the desire to retreat or to conform. Uh, and they don't sort of necessarily have the tools to handle it. And so Sarah, you know, when she's saying, I'm, I'm ready to lose my job, and that's not the end of the world, that's a giant tool to handle it. But if you define yourself by your job, if that's your ultimate identity, then you'll do almost anything, almost anything to avoid it. And, you know, in the context of um, politics and religion, here's how one way you know that your religion is politics. Um, And then is that for, I'll give you, or one of the ways you know that, you know, politics has become your religion. I'll give you a perfect example. Just in 1998, in the Southern Baptist Convention, wrote this thing called the Res- uh, Statement on Moral Character and Public Officials. And 1998, so what was happening then? Monica Lewinsky, Bill Clinton, and they wrote these words that, that um, I thought were really good, and I totally agreed. And tolerance of serious wrongs by leaders sears the conscience of a culture, results in unrestrained lawlessness, and surely will result in God's judgment. Whoa. <laughs> and everyone was like, yay. Then, you know, 2016 rolls around and you say tolerance of serious wrong by leaders uh, sears the conscience of a culture, restri- re- results in unrestrained lawlessness, and surely will result in God's judgment. No, no, well, uh, I'm sorry. No, I mean, not really. Times we're have changed. We're electing a president, not a pastor. Yeah, we're electing a president, not a pastor. Times have changed. Times have changed. And you realize that the religious argument was in service of politics. And then when the politics change, the religious argument changes. When that happens, that's a giant red flag that says, politics is my religion, religion (laughs) is my hobby. And and so I think that's the first time David sung on the podcast. That's my first singing. It's this live audience, a friendly live audience. So yeah, that but those that CLS Lewis quote was absolutely, you know, really key in my life. You know, it's interesting you say that because something that I take really, really seriously when I was doing communication, political communication, is um, never lie. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you hold yourself to that, there are moments that are like stupid. So, for instance, someone asks you, you know, hey, can you go get coffee? And you're like, oh, no, I can't. I've got a thing. Like, eh, I just don't want to go get coffee. Um, in in comms world, what will often happen is, um, you know, do you know the next time that the AG, who's the AG meeting with right now? Oh, I don't know. That's not true. I do know who he's meeting with. And to not tell those little lies was really important to me. And it was something that you're right. It went to like who I wanted to myself to be and who I identified myself as. 
And so, you know, the answer to that question is, uh, I can't tell you that. And it's uncomfortable, but it's, it, for me, was like this really important thing that like kept me a little cozy at night. Can I tell you a funny story exactly along those lines? So probably three people in this room know uh, that I briefly considered running for president. <laughs> uh, and why did, was that? I know it's on Wikipedia. I know it's on Wikipedia, but the re the reason why it was such a brief exploration is because only probably three people in this room remember it, and I realized that our movement would be dozens strong, and that's a little short. But I did briefly consider running for president in 2016, which is still insane to think about. And there was a point where we were trying to figure out whether or not I was going to do it, and it was very important that this be quiet, that nobody know that this was being considered. And so I forgot to tell the publicist at National Review that I was, you know, I was not available. And the phone rings and I see it's her number and she answer, I answer and she's putting through Mark Halperin from Bloomberg. I'm like, oh crud. And so he says, and so the whole point of the run in 2016 would have been to run like an integrity candidacy different from Trump and Clinton. And so he says, I have three sources saying that the person that Bill Kristol has tweeted about is you. Um, do you, he said, is this true? And I said, um, uh, uh, and he said, can I quote you? Um, uh, uh, and I said, no, 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 no. I have something better to say. And he said, well, let me put it this way. Do you deny it? And I thought I had this incredible burst of temptation to deny it, like I, out of nowhere, like I might buy myself some time because I know if I don't deny it, then everything changes instantaneously. And then I had this like still small voice in my head that went, you're not, you're supposed to be the integrity guy. <laughs> <laughs> you don't start an integrity campaign with a lie, you know? <laughs> and so I said, I don't deny it. And then he said, the story will be up in 15 minutes. And he lied. It was 10. <laughs> and then everything changed. Everything changed. But yeah, you that those little, the little things, they matter. Yeah. You start habit small. Mm -hmm. What is it? Aim small, miss small. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, maybe one last question, unless there are no more. And if there are no more, well. Um, out of curiosity, and I guess this depends a lot on what the results are in the Texas abortion case. Um, but do you guys think we might see states um, that passed laws that allow David to sue people for carrying a gun? <laughs> I'm shocked we haven't already. Yes. The answer to that question is, yes, we will. And David will be very busy. <laughs> <laughs> Making a lot of money. And potentially yeah. very wealthy. Very yes. wealthy. I actually think it'll come, again, I think the Texas case will find a way to prevent this from happening. So this is all maybe quite moot. But I actually think it will not come in the form of gun stuff. I do think it'll come in the form of speech, that the government can't punish you for hate speech, but your fellow citizens can. And so I think it'll be speech code type stuff because it's so tempting because um, we hate, our culture hates uh, offensive speech. I mean, the Nazis marching in Skokie, we pride ourselves on standing up for it, but then when it actually is our turn, Boy, it seems quite hard to get anyone to stand athwart then. It might be a crowd plea. And the other thing is, think of it, these things have to be sort of crowd pleasers within their jurisdictions. 
So a, uh, a heartbeat bill uh, lawsuit in Texas is a crowd pleaser much more so than it would be in many other states. So what would be a crowd pleaser in a more, in a different jurisdiction? Maybe suing a social media company or anybody who t- posts on social media for misinformation. And so what could happen is you might have a situation where broadly in social media world, the left, just to sort of overgeneralize, but it's broadly true, wants more censorship online and the right wants less censorship online. Well, what's one way you could get more censorship online? Give David a freestanding right to sue me if I post anything on Facebook um, about vaccines that is anti-vaccine or uh, inaccurate about vaccines. Then, you know, it's interesting. There is there is no constitutional principle that says that inaccurate speech isn't constitutionally protected. Um, the Constitution does, in many circumstances, protect false speech. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, think about the stolen valor case. That was false yeah. speech that was protected. Mm-hmm. Well, David, you're going to be very busy, I think, is what we're finding. David. Thank you for letting us. Can uh, I ride in your Lamborghini? <laughs> like, that's that's all I want. That's all I want. Well, thank you guys very much. And thank you all listening on the conventional podcast. And we won't see you guys Monday, but we'll talk to everybody else on Monday. Yeah.